Take your Bible and turn to Ruth chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever wanted to quit? Yeah, I'm with you. You wanted to quit your job. You wanted to quit school. You wanted to quit your career. You wanted to quit your family. How many of you have ever wanted to quit? Probably all of us at some time or another. But why do people quit? There are a myriad of reasons. People quit their jobs because they're tired of working. Or they don't like their boss. Or they don't get paid enough. Or they think they can get a better job somewhere else. Or they just need a break. How many of you ever needed a break? People quit their marriages because their husband's a jerk. Amen, someone said. (laughs) Or their spouse is cheating on them. Or they can't stand to be in the same room together. People quit all kinds of things. Big things, small things. How many of you ever quit piano lessons? Yeah. Why? Weren't very good at it, huh? (laughs) It's a lot of work. Weren't making enough progress. I decided I'd rather play football than play piano. Probably should have stuck with piano. Why do people quit on church? More importantly, why do people quit on God? I believe one of the biggest reasons why people quit is discouragement. You ever get discouraged? You ever feel like, I just don't want to do this anymore? Somebody said something to you? Somebody did something to you? Or you tried to do the right thing over and over and over and over again, but you just don't seem to get very good results. You ever get discouraged? It happens in marriages. It happens in families. It happens in church. Been one too many bad business meetings. I ain't coming back. And it happens in our relationship with God. God, I prayed and I prayed that my loved one would get well. They didn't get well. God, I prayed that you would give me a job. I can't pay the bills. But you didn't get a job. And you lost everything. Sometimes people get discouraged. And they quit on God. I believe one of the biggest reasons why people quit is discouragement. And discouragement is one of the greatest tools of the devil. Because if the devil can get you discouraged, he can get you defeated. Some of you may be discouraged today. It's so easy to get discouraged. The car breaks down. Or the roof starts leaking. Or your day starts out really well. But by the end of the day, you're in the ER. Sometimes it's in the little things. Sometimes it's in things that are a lot bigger. You lose a child. 
or you lose a spouse. And sometimes in the process, if you're not careful, you can lose your desire to live and walk by faith. A lot of really good people get discouraged. How many of you have ever gotten discouraged? Look around you, a lot of good people with their hands up, right? Some of the best people in the Bible got discouraged. Elijah got discouraged. David got discouraged. Job got discouraged. Jonah got discouraged. Some of you may be thinking, if you've been here the last few weeks, well, Jonah was pretty selfish, wasn't he? Yes, he was. But he was also a prophet of God, and he got discouraged. Here in the book of Ruth, we see a woman named Naomi. She got discouraged. Why did she get discouraged? What happened? Go to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Right off the bat, her circumstances are bad. There's a famine in the land. A family has got to eat, so the family decides to move. Verse 2. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. Now, those were some names there. Elimelech means God is my strength. I like that. Naomi means sweet or pleasant. I like that too. You see, in the Bible, names usually have a connection with what people are. We don't know this, but my guess is that Elimelech was probably someone who had a strong faith in God, and Naomi was someone with a pleasant disposition. Say pleasant with me. Pleasant. With a smile on your face. But here's the kicker. The two sons' names are Malon and Kilion, which basically means weak and sickly. Why in the world would you name your kids weak and sickly? How are you feeling today? Oh, I'm feeling kind of weak, but that's better than being sickly. (laughs) Maybe there was nothing to those name meetings, but a lot of scholars believe there was. Anyway, all in all, they're a pretty good family. And this upstanding, God-fearing family is moving out of Bethlehem because of the famine. And do you know what the name Bethlehem means? House of bread. Now that's interesting. There's no bread in the house of bread. So they decide to move. Verse 2 continues. And they went to Moab and lived there. This is not the worst thing that happens in the story, but it's not good. Sometimes bad things happen to some of the best of people, people who are loving and kind and sweet and thoughtful and generous. How many of you know somebody who was a high-quality individual, but they had something bad happen to them? Probably all of us. Now, don't raise your hand on this one, but how many of you know Some people who you really don't mind bad stuff happening to. I'm not talking something major. But you don't mind if they're up for a promotion and they don't get it. You don't mind if uh, they're trying to get into a particular 
highbrow school and, and they don't get in. You don't really mind if they don't get invited to the popular party. You don't really mind if they have a flat tire on the way to work and the boss chews them out. You probably got some people like that in your life. Well, these people, Naomi and her family, they're not like that. They're loving and kind and sweet and generous, and everybody wants good stuff to happen to them. There's a famine in the land. So the family decides to move in order to find food. And apparently that problem gets solved, but they are about to encounter a lot bigger issue. Verse 3 tells us, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Put yourself in Naomi's place. You move away from home to a foreign country because of famine, and you're in this strange place where you know hardly anybody. You're away from friends and family, and now your husband dies. Naomi's not just getting discouraged. She's heartbroken, probably borderline bitter. She's in a tough situation, and her circumstances are not about to get any better. She has two sons, weak and sickly. I mean, Mahan and Gilead. And they up and married Moabite women. Now, Moabites were from a different country from Naomi. They probably had different customs and a different religion. These Moabite women were probably not what Naomi would have had in mind when she prayed for her sons. She was hoping her sons would marry good Jewish girls. These may be good girls, but they are not Jews, and perhaps not what Naomi would have preferred. Now, don't raise your hands. I don't want to start World War III here, but how many of you married someone your mother wouldn't have chosen for you? Don't raise your hand. Somebody did. <laughs> well, I remember when Monique and I were dating, we had fallen in love. And... I decided I wanted to marry Monique, but I wanted to do the proper gentlemanly thing. So normally in the culture that many of us have been brought up in, the, the would-be husband goes to the dad and asks for the daughter's hand in marriage. Well, Monique's dad had died when she was like seven or eight years old, so I couldn't ask him. Uh, so I thought I should go ask her mother. You know, and, and so I went and I talked to Bonnie, Monique's mom, about maybe marrying Monique. And uh, Monique's mom says, we need to get together for lunch, the three of us at my house. I told Monique, I said, that sounds good. Monique said, it ain't good. <laughs> and it really wasn't that good. But when I went home and told my mother that I was going to marry Monica. She was so excited. She said, yes, you're finally getting married, and you're marrying the most amazing, wonderful woman I've ever seen in my life. I am so happy for you. She didn't say that either. <laughs> Monique didn't know I was going to say that till the first service, and I just kind of had to say that. But anyway, that's true. But now she thinks Monique is wonderful, and I think that I'm my mother-in-law's favorite son-in-law. So you never know. Verse 4. Moving right along. Naomi's sons married Moabite women. One named Orpah. By the way, that's not 
Oprah. That's Orpa, okay? Say Orpa. Thank you. And one of the daughters-in-law was Orpa, and the other was Ruth. And they're probably really good girls, especially Ruth, but they're also Moabites. Women from different cultures with different religions, different ways of doing stuff, probably not Naomi's first choices. Verse 4 continues. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. Remember the name meanings? Weak and sickly. Well, weak and sickly's conditions just got worse. Weak and sickly, the two sons of Naomi just died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Things have gone from bad to worse for Naomi. She's done nothing wrong. She's not been disobedient to God and trying to do life her own way and rebelling against the things of the Lord. I think Naomi was trying to be a good wife and a good mom and a good follower of God, but her life has fallen apart. She lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She's got no family except for these daughters-in-law. Life is tough. Sometimes bad things happen to the best of people. People are kind and thoughtful and generous. People are loving. Some of the best people can have some of the worst things happen to them in life. Finally, in verse 6, we see a slight ray of hope. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Finally, a little bit of good news for Naomi. The famine is over in Bethlehem. I can move back home and be closer to kinfolk and get out of this weird country where they worship these really weird gods, and I can be back where I belong. And the two daughters-in-law volunteer to go with her. I think that says a lot on both sides of the equation. First of all, that Naomi actually wants her daughters-in-law to go with her. And secondly, that they want to go. Let me tell you something. That doesn't always happen, okay? But they want to go with their mother-in-law. And the mother-in-law wants them to come. Naomi, to her credit, encourages her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. She could really use their help, but she wants what's best for them. And she finally talks Orpah into staying. Ruth, on the other hand, refuses to leave. Instead of leaving Naomi, she clings to her. Naomi again tries to dissuade her. Verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Ruth gives a classic response here. I want to read it from the King James because of its beauty. And Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Have you ever heard these words before? I'm guessing if you remember these words, you probably heard them in a wedding. This is a fairly popular Bible verse at weddings, even though it really has nothing to do with romantic love. But why? First of all, it's beautiful, is it not? Entreat me not to leave thee. Whither thou goest, 
I will go. Wherever thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy God shall be my... Isn't it beautiful, is it not? It really is. It also sounds really sentimental and syrupy. And we like that in weddings, along with a little humor. Here's another reason. People have no idea what is the context. They're thinking when they hear this in a wedding, this is a man and a woman. And they're talking about joining their lives together in this romantic, sweet, and syrupy love. But that's not the context at all, is it? This is a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. It also reflects, I believe, a love that is unconditional and sacrificial. That's actually a pretty solid reason. You see, love should be unconditional and sacrificial. Ruth, in essence, tells Naomi... I know what you're saying. I know that if I leave Moab, I'm going to leave my country. I'm going to leave my people. I'm going to leave my religion. I'm going to leave everything that I am comfortable with in order to go with you, but I have already made up my mind. I am going with you. I've already weighed my options. I decide to go. Back to marriage, guys. Do you know this Wednesday is Valentine's Day? Just a heads up, okay? My wife will tell you, I don't have a romantic bone in my body. I need to improve, okay? Don't take your romance lessons from me, all right? But I'm working on it. But perhaps we ought to spell the word love with a capital C. You see, romance is fine and good and wonderful, and we ought to try to improve on that, some of us. But marriage is really more about commitment. I am committed to you because I love you, Monique. I want to be there for you because I love you, but I'm also committed to you. There are some days when Monique probably doesn't like me very much. I know that's hard to believe. (laughs) Not for some of you, is it? And there are some days when I'm probably not that crazy about my wife. But I am committed to her. In the thick and the thin and the easy and the hard places of life, even when we don't get along very well that day, even when we have an argument, even when we have a struggle, I'm committed to you. And that's what love is like in marriages, but also in other relationships. The love of God is a commitment to one another. I'm committed to you guys. I love you guys. We may not always agree on everything, but I love you. And this is a great church, and I'm glad to be here. 1 Corinthians 13 says this about love. Love is patient. That's a hard one, is it not? Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. That's a hard one, is it not? How many of you, when you get into an argument with somebody, you dig up stuff that happened six years ago? I remember what you said. Don't do that. Love doesn't do that. Love says, hey, let's just forget about that and let's move forward. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient, love is kind, it is not envy, does not boast, not proud, not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered, doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Then it says this, it always protects, it always trusts, 
It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. That's a whole lot better than just sweet and syrupy sentimentality. Well, back to our story. Many scholars tell us that there is another powerful analogy here comparing Orpah and Ruth. And that Orpah is a picture of a person who has a sense of religion, a sense of duty. I will go with you, mother-in-law Naomi, because that's what I'm supposed to do. But Ruth is going with Naomi because that is her heart's desire. And as church members and as followers of Jesus Christ, that's important to learn. You see, it's not enough just to show up for church because it's a duty. I don't much want to be there today. It's kind of raining outside. I'd rather be sleeping at home. But it's my duty, so I guess I'll show up. Now, I think that's better than staying home sleeping in bed, okay? But God's looking for a lot more than that. He's looking for a people that have a love relationship with him that says, God, I want to be with you. I want to worship you. I want to know you. I want a relationship with you that is a lot deeper than the surface. Verse 17, Ruth goes on. Talking to her mother-in-law, Naomi, she says, Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Ruth has made up her mind. I am not leaving you, Naomi. I am following you back to Bethlehem. You know, stubbornness is not always a bad thing. Turn to your neighbor and say, Hey, stubbornness is not always a bad thing. Now, you respond back to them, but sometimes it is. (laughs) It's not always a bad thing, though. Think about some of the hymns that we've sung. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights, things that are higher, things that are nobler. These have allured my side. How about this chorus? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. You see the resolve? No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. You see the resolve there? There's a resolve. There's a stubborn resolve, if you will, in that. We see it in the Bible. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were told that they need to bow down to this idol or they're going to be thrown into a furnace of fire. So, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just said, okay, well, that's what we need to do. That's what, they didn't do that, did they? What did they do? They said this. They said, the God that we serve is able to deliver us. But even if he does not, we will not bow down to your idol. Do you see the resolve there? Daniel, when he's told not to pray anymore, he says, I can't help it. I'm praying anyway. Throw me into a lion's den if you want to. How about Joshua? Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, here's what we're going to do. We are going to serve the Lord. Do you see a stubborn resolve there? Go to verse 18. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. 
There's no doubting that Ruth has made up her mind. I'm going with you, Naomi. You can't stop me. Verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? And her response is this. Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Why? The name Naomi literally means pleasant. Naomi was probably a very happy person when she left Israel. Life was basically good. I have a good husband. I've got two sons. I've got my family. Life is not perfect, but life is pretty good. But when people see Naomi this time, they hardly recognize her. When Naomi left Bethlehem, she was a flourishing young mother. Now here she is, this desolate widow. Have you ever been there? There was a time in your life when you couldn't wait to get out of bed. You enjoyed living. You enjoyed being with the people of God. You even enjoyed going to work. But you don't enjoy it anymore. You don't enjoy going to church that much anymore. You don't enjoy going to work anymore if you ever did. You don't really enjoy getting out of bed. You just want to stay there by yourself and be alone because you've been hurt. You got discouraged. You want to quit. When the women ask if this is Naomi, notice her response in the middle of verse 20. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Remember, Naomi means pleasant. Mara, do you know what that means? It means bitter. Naomi has become bitter, and she knows it. A lot of people are bitter, and they may not even know it. You may be living in bitterness today, and you don't know it. But if you lost your joy... If you've lost your desire to to get up out of bed, or you've lost your desire to be with God's people, or you've lost your desire to serve, it might just be because you've got bitterness inside. But why is Naomi bitter? Verse 20 continues, followed by 21. The Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me, says Naomi. I went away full. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You ever been there? You ever felt like that? If you haven't, don't be too proud. It could happen to you. It could happen to anybody. Life can fall apart on people. Some of the best people in the Bible had some of the hardest circumstances. How many of you remember Job? Job was one of the greatest men in all the world. He was godly. He was rich. He had a great family. But one day, God allowed Satan to take it away. He lost all of his wealth, and he lost all of his children. And then Satan says, that's not enough, God. You take away his health, and he'll curse you. And so God allows him to take away his health, and Job is in agonizing pain. Job didn't see that coming. Some of you may be in pain today. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. That doesn't mean you're not following God. 
It might be because you are following God and God is allowing stuff to happen. That doesn't mean God wants that to happen in your life, but that's part of living. It can happen to great people. Great people sometimes have hard circumstances. If you don't believe that, look at Job. Here we have Naomi. I think a quality person. A pleasant lady, I believe. How about the apostles? Every single one of them except for John, according to tradition, died a martyr's death. That wasn't easy. For many of us, God spares us of problems. And if you've had a pretty easy life, you get down on your knees and you thank God because you have been blessed. Even if you haven't had an easy life, you thank God because one day you will be blessed beyond measure because your faith is in Christ and this life on this earth is but a snap of the finger and eternity is forever. But you stay in there with him right here and right now, even in the hard places of life because it is a lot more difficult, but I believe more God-honoring. If you can worship God and stay in there with God in the hard places, than to simply worship God and follow God when life is really good for you. Some problems we bring on ourselves, but some we don't. So don't get the big head if you think, well, life's good for me because I'm just such a great person. Maybe not. Last verse of chapter 1, we see a glimmer of hope. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Naomi is an older woman by now, and the last half of her life has not been good. However, Naomi's final chapter has yet to be written. Let me tell you something today. You may be discouraged. You may feel like giving up. You may want to quit. But let me remind you that Philippians 1, 6 says, He who started a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He is not done with you yet. So by the grace of God, you rise up and you follow him and the power of Jesus Christ. The Bible says greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Do you believe that? The Bible says faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Do you believe that? The Bible says you serve a God who's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, immeasurably more than all you can ask or think or even imagine. Do you believe that? The Bible says you're more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ your Lord. Do you believe that? That does not mean that life will be easy. But it does mean that he will be with you whatever circumstances you may face. This book is about Ruth and Naomi. However, it's been argued that this book is also a picture of the church. Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, like the church, had their share of trials. They lose their husbands. In the Jewish world, if you lost your husband, you lost your status. And you lost your economic power. With no sons to take care of you, you're probably going to live the remainder of your life in poverty. Naomi and her family go through a terrible amount of tragedy. Yet in the middle of all these trials, God still proves himself faithful. He still is. No matter what your issue, your problem, your struggle, or your need, your God is faithful. And he's good. The book of Ruth is also 
a beautiful picture of how God used the most unlikely of people to become the great-grandmother of King David and an ancestor of Jesus Christ who came into the world through Ruth's, the Moabitess family line. Ruth was a Moabite, a Gentile, a stranger to the people of God. Anyone who is a non-Jew is a Gentile. Have I got any Gentiles in the room today? If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. The Bible says that as Gentiles, we too were strangers to the promise that God brought us into the family. Aren't you glad? Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm part of the family. You are part of the family of God. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, and if you've never received Christ as your Savior and Lord, today is your day. You don't have to sign up for a class. You can give your heart to Jesus Christ today and be what the Bible calls born again, a new person in Christ, and you can have life forever and ever. God does not say, follow me, and I'll give you an exemption notice from all the trials of life. But God does say, if you follow me, I will go with you through the middle of them. And how many believe God's a lot more powerful than you are? He's a lot wiser than you are. He's a lot greater than you are. And anywhere with God is better than anywhere else without him. Do you believe that? Then why not go with him? Would you pray with me?